Well, let's go to the Word. 1 Corinthians. We are in a series entitled United, and we are laboring for one common purpose, and that is to live as a people united in the gospel for God's glory. And several weeks ago, we began looking at a topic in this series on Christian liberty. How is it that Christians live in the freedom of Christ and the freedom in which Christ gives to us? And Paul begins to address this in chapter 8, and he addresses it in chapter 9, and he culminates in chapter 10, and that's what we'll look at today. And what he tells us in chapter 8 is that we've been set free through the gospel in Jesus Christ. In other words, we don't have these confining constrictions. We don't live by the law, but we live now by the law of the Spirit that has set us free in Christ Jesus But he tells us that freedoms and rights always must be used to serve our faithful witness to the Lord. And this is where you and I full well know, Christians, that it gets so confusing in life at times that when we're out and we find ourselves in situations and we find ourselves with friends or even with family, how do I navigate this relationship or this situation so that I can be faithful to be a, a witness for Jesus Christ while also helping these people and pointing them to him. And so in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul simply tells us that freedoms can and should be sacrificed for mission. In other words, we don't gain anything by the exercise of them, nor do we lose anything by the sacrificing of them, but they're tools and instruments for us to use as a faithful witness. And when we are called upon to do so and can do so, it's okay to sacrifice them for mission. We're not depriving ourselves of anything. And he goes a step further in chapter 9, and he says, even our rights, the things that we are owed or due, can be given up for the sake of a greater reward, a greater glory. And so today, he's going to kind of take these two uh, pretty strong stances that he's set forth, and he's going to try to navigate and help us with some principles, or what I'm going to call today four instructions to help us understand how do we know when to apply and what to apply and where to apply and with whom we should apply. And I hope this helps you today. Here's what I want you to understand, that Christians live a faithful witness to win people to Jesus when we apply the gospel to all of life for God's glory. Friends, to me, this is the most hopeful aspect about the gospel. That there is no measure or no area, no situation or circumstance or relationship of life that the gospel does not directly apply to. And I think this is what we as Christians must cling to because we're so prone to forget it, but also must be careful to make sure that we faithfully represent Christ in our witness and proclaim the gospel to the world. Because the most difficult situations of life are most fully satisfied in Jesus. And every situation in life is. And so we as Christians want to live as a faithful witness so that we can win people to Jesus when we apply the gospel to all of life for God's glory. And so that's what Paul is teaching us today. And I want to help you live as a faithful witness each and every day of your life by looking at four instructions to help you apply the gospel. Let's look at the first 13 verses together of chapter 10. And let's see where Paul leads us. Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Paul begins with a strong warning to guard against sin in these first 13 verses. And the first instruction or reminder that he provides for us is simply this, that we should allow no lingering of our life near temptation. And this is the first instruction that he provides. He begins by moving into the Israelites of the Old Testament. And he refers to them as our fathers. And he says of them that they are the ones that we should look to and they provide an example for us to learn from. Something to model, to understand how it is that if you linger too long near temptation, you will begin to indulge by participation in idolatry. And so he says to them, they were uh, baptized into Moses. So we, we have this imagery he provides for us of these symbols that we can correlate to and what it meant for them by their participation. But we also see something that Paul does here when he talks about the rock from which they drank and the rock was Christ. In other words, Jesus was with them in his pre-incarnate nature in the Old Testament. You see, Jesus is as eternal as the Father. And just because he had not come in the flesh yet does not mean he was not with his people. The people of the Old Testament are saved in the same way that the people of the New Testament and after are saved by faith in Jesus. The Old Testament looked forward to, those in the New Testament looked upon, and those after the New Testament looked back upon. But it's all by faith, for no one will be saved without faith. And so Paul provides these examples for us, and he helps us understand what they were. But here's what he says. Even though they had all of this participation, he says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. It's interesting that he would say most, right? How many was God pleased enough to allow to cross over the Jordan River into the promised land? Two. Who were they? Joshua and Caleb. The rest of them of that generation perished in the wilderness. Why? Because they didn't believe. Because they didn't trust. And God would not allow them to enter the promised land they were overthrown in the wilderness. What does it mean to be overthrown? It simply means that they were overcome with their temptation. That, that they allowed the, the, the grumbling of the masses to overwhelm them. They let the words of the people around them have a greater place in their ears and in their mind and in their heart than the word of God coming to them. Hence the reason John prayed this morning, let the wisdom of God guide us today that we might receive what he has to say to us they let the participation of idolatrous ways and practices consume them that they had learned from the past in Egypt and what happened it destroyed them it destroyed them his reference to they sat down to eat and drink and they rose to play is an explicit reference to the idolatrous practices of the people of other gods and of other nations and what they were saying is that they allowed themselves to linger too long near to temptation so that it sucked them in to full idolatry. The children of Israel provide an example for us. We see that their choice and displeasure of God and we see that it produced death in them. And this is someone, Paul says, these are people. This is an example that we should learn from. You see, friends, we know that God's word says, but we also know from the examples that he's provided for us that sin never proves beneficial for us. It always destroys the participant and harms those who are associated with the participant. Paul gives a strong warning against wrong thinking regarding temptation. I don't know if you've ever committed these two verses to memory, 
But every Christian should quickly capture these verses and let these verses capture them. Verse 12 and verse 13. Go there with me because Paul provides a strong warning against our wrong thinking regarding whether or not temptation is something we should linger near. What does he say? Therefore, what's the therefore? Because of the example that we have of the Israelites. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Take heed. How easy is it for you and I to see the fall of another into sin and to think that could never happen to me. That would never happen to me. Friends, there's not one sin that's ever been committed that I don't stand fully near committing in my own life except by being guarded by the grace of God. And that's true for every person who will ever walk on the face of the earth. If you have given in to one temptation that's led you into sin, you are vulnerable to any temptation. And while some may hold a stronger sway over you and in you, none are absent from the possibility of you. But that's the way we're so inclined to think. Well, that's just them. They did something stupid. You know, I would never do that. You see, friends, that's by default a a, a trust in self above a trust in Jesus. Paul says, take heed. That's a very strong warning. Listen up. Attend yourself to what I am about to say. Because Christians learn really in three ways. We learn by example. We learn by instruction. But we also learn by personal reflection. To understand that our heart is vulnerable to any sin without the shield of God's grace constantly guarding us. And so rather in dismissing the sins that we don't feel immediately tempted to commit, we regard temptation with a greater consciousness, knowing it only leads to sin, and therefore it is always dangerous and it is always damaging. Here's the distinction we need to make in our mind. Temptation is not the same as sin. And as we grow and mature in the Christian life. That's an important distinction for us to make. But it's also important for us to grow in our awareness and our consciousness to realize temptation only leads to sin. And if we give in, we will sin. And so we confess that temptation constantly lurks and beckons upon our heart. Just because I don't sin like you sin and you don't sin the way I sin explicitly or identically doesn't mean that we're not equally as susceptible to sin. And that's why temptation should never be allowed to be lingering near to us. John Calvin gives the statement that is true for us. The, the mid-century uh, uh, theologian, he says, the human heart is a factory of idols. And we only need temptation as the raw material to craft in our own image something that we can worship that brings a false promise to us. You see, Christians understand that a light attitude toward temptations always yields a life entangled in sin. And so we take heed that we never flirt with temptation so that we don't get tripped into sin. But then verse 13 When we take heed, God's faithful provision that Paul gives to us is right there with us. Look what he says in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. You see, God always provides a way of escape when temptation lurks. Would you consider this for just a moment, Christian? There's never been a temptation, excuse me, or sin in your life 
where God's faithful provision hasn't been present for you. Never. According to 1 Corinthians 10.13, there's never been a moment when you felt tempted or when you indulged in sin, when God's provision for you wasn't fully present and fully adequate to escape. Now, I don't say that to condemn you. I say that to remind us. Just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And part of where we're moving today is how is it that we strengthen the eyes of our heart to see the provision of God's escape when temptation lurks instead of after sin has occurred. Because so often the process of confession and repentance is about looking back when temptation knocked on our heart's door and understanding where God's provision was. So that the next time we're confronted with that, we can spot it before we get to sin and when temptation lurks. You see, a Christian's response to temptation is an immediate search for God's way of escape. Because that's God's provision for us. And it's always present. So how is it that we find this way of escape? First of all, what we do is we align our thinking the way that this mind operates in all of the mental synapses, the electrical firings that are taking place. We align our thinking with the truth of God's word and not just the desires of our own hearts. And if we're going to do that, then we need to be careful not to disregard God's word in passing when we don't think it matters as much. We need to be careful not to doubt his truth for our life and and instead trying to trust our own thinking for our life. We need to be careful not to dismiss his commands. Well, I don't know if I like what God is saying there or whether I agree. So we shouldn't disagree with his teachings or deny his instructions for our life. Because when we do that, we train the thinking of our mind to say, I don't know if God really has a better way for me than the way that I have for me. And so the word of God becomes of critical essence for us in every way to attend our lives to fully. See, we strive to fill our mind and to consume our heart with God's truth and God's grace so that when temptation knocks, we not only know what God's way is, because you've been there, right? You knew what was right. And in that moment, you said, I just don't know if I want what's right. To know God's truth, and hear me, to so consume our heart with his hope that we say yes by faith to it. That God, through Jesus Christ, through the gospel, becomes the most hopeful way for us that we would run to him and that we would cover our lives in him. You see, knowing the gospel lights our thinking to God's way of escape. That's why the psalmist says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Why? So that when temptation comes, God's way of escape is not only recognizable and known to us, but most hopeful for us. Trusting that God's faithfulness always remains with us, we set our minds and we set our hearts on Jesus to identify his way of escape and to guard ourselves against temptation's allure. Allow no lingering in your life near temptation. The second instruction I want you to see is that we not only allow no temptation and to linger near it, but we flee temptation in order to focus on our strong identity in Christ. You see, with a strong caution and a faithful provision, Paul immediately follows that with a clear command. Look with me in verse 14 through 22. Faced with temptation... He's taught us to recognize God's way of escape. And then he says this, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 
I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he, he says. You see, friends, he is telling us that fleeing temptation is not just about running into oblivion, but it's about fleeing the temptation that we might focus on our identity in Christ. That's what he's talking about. Remember, in the first five verses, he talked about the cup from which they drink, which was the rock of Christ, and the bread that fell from heaven, and their baptism into the leadership of Moses, which was a precursor to the Lord Jesus Christ. But now we live in the full light of who Christ Jesus is. And it is his blood in the cup from which we drink. It is his body that was broken for us that we break in remembrance of him to partake in. It is his baptism that we are baptized in to symbolize and to demonstrate what he has done for us. And what Paul says is we flee idolatry. We Flee these things that oppose who Christ is. And hear me, friend, you can't flee idolatry by looking back. If you're going to drive a car, you need to look through the windshield, which is many times larger than the rearview mirror, right? How many of you try to drive looking in the rearview mirror? It's just not very easy, is it? I tell you, it's always the people driving in front of me that are doing that. And I just get a little closer and go, just, just look through the window. I don't know why they keep driving, looking in the rearview mirror. You can't flee if you keep looking back. And that's why he commands us to flee, to, to cease giving attention to temptation and to cease giving your attention to sin that it leads to and to rather to run away uh, toward God's way of escape. You see, looking back and focusing on temptation can only lead to sin. That's what God told Lot and his family when he told them to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. He commanded them to leave and to not look back, right? But what happened? Lot's wife looked back and she turned into a pillar of salt. And the story goes, a little boy heard this story in, in his class at church one morning. And he said, that's funny. Said the other day, my mom looked back while she was driving and turned into a telephone pole. You may not always turn into a pillar of salt. But I promise you, there will be a telephone pole waiting if you keep looking back on the things that are tempting you. Christians never flirt with nor give focus to temptation. That's what 1 Corinthians is teaching. And, and this is what I think is so important. Paul's making a replacement. If you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7, he talked about that that. That people who indulge in idolatry have a knowledge through participation. Have a knowledge by association. In other words, it's learned experience. They know it because they've done it. And many of them wear the t-shirt to show it. 
And the problem is that, that, that it, it has conditioned their thinking by their participation. And what Paul is purporting to us is that because of Christ Jesus, we change our participation and it trains us in the transformation of our thinking. Now, just our actions are not what changes our life, but our actions come as a result of the change that Christ has made in us. That's why he's saying, do we not participate in the cup of blessing? Do we not break the bread? And because we break this bread, and because we drink from this cup, we who are many are what? One. Because we partake from one. Friends, this is so critical because I'm telling you the next five chapters that we look at in this verse will all come from this root, this seed that he's planting right now. I, I tell you that this is the seed of the gospel that grows covenant membership in the church. We who are many are one. Why? Because the one from which we all drink and eat is one. That's unity right there. That's unity. And it begins with you in the way you deal with your temptation and whether you give it a second glance or not. You see, the conscience, through this knowledge of participation, the conscience becomes cauterized to the Spirit of God. It just cuts off the flow every time the committal is made. And, and, and where we used to know something was sin, first of all, we just kind of dismissed God's word that it was sin. And then we disregarded it as we partook in it. And then we just dismissed it because what happened was the Spirit was trying to speak, but we had cut off the communication flow in our conscience and in our heart and literally cauterized the presence of God in the practical activity of life. And now, we've come to a point where we have little if no conscience regarding that sin. Why? Through our own participation. And what Paul is training us in here is to reopen the flow of the Spirit of God in us to lead us as we step and walk. Walk with the Spirit, he says to the Galatians. Why? So you won't satisfy the desires of the flesh. And if the Spirit's not walking with you, it's because you've cut him off. Because God's always there to provide a way. And I would encourage you today, if you've cut the Spirit of God off from your heart and from your conscience, you need to understand it doesn't mean God's provision has gone away. You're just going to have to relearn how to identify it. And it will come through his word. The conscience becomes carterized regarding sin and even regarding temptation through this participation directly, and I would even argue that Paul states by indirectly association. So a second glance, friend, at temptation never serves you well. You want to win the war of sinful addiction in your life? Deal with it when the temptation arrives and not when the occurrence of sin arrives. I tell you, that's Christian maturity right there. You stop fighting sin in your actions and you begin to fight it when it hits your heart. And the more mature that you grow as a Christ follower, the more you will let God do his surgical procedures, not just in changing your behavior, but in altering your affections. Because your actions will always grow out of that which you love most and most deeply. And when the gospel is planted most deeply in you, what comes out of you will grow fruit that brings glory to God and a faithful witness to other people. Friend, you cannot ally yourself with sinful practice and align your life to grow and to mature as a Christian. And some of you are fed up with God because you don't see any growth and maturity, but you've brought too many temptations and too many sins too close, and you're just letting them hang out with you because you like them. You see, fleeing temptation means you need a new focus. And that new identity becomes that consuming focus to replace a former participation with idolatry and with sin. A deeper participation in Christ's atoning sacrifice establishes our life in a new identity. If Christ has set you free, you are free indeed. If anyone is in Christ, Paul writes later to the Corinthians, he is a new creation. 
Not because we've done something, but because we've been given something. God's put a new heart in us. He took our heart of stone that was hard to him, and he gave us a heart of flesh that beat hard after him. And in that heart, he put his spirit to live with us and to walk with us each and every day. And it is the spirit's presence in us by the word of God illumining in us that is leading us to walk in alignment with the truth of God's Uh, in the truth of God's will for our life. You see, communion with Christ. That's what Paul's describing here. Partaking of the cup and breaking of the bread. That's communion, friends. We're entering into the sacrifice that was made for us that is our substitution and our atonement. And by participation through communion with Christ in his word, when we break the bread of life, when we drink from the water of life, who is Christ, it's the word. And when we commune with him and when we live in community with other Christ followers who are communing with Christ, we who are many are what? I'm gonna need your help today. We who are many are what? Because we partake of one, one. Not because we figured out how to deal with each other, right? Oh, I figured out how to put up with those people, so I guess I can be a part of this church. Really, being part of a church is just a matter of you figuring out how to put up with Jesus. That's a little slang, and I don't mean any disrespect by it. But we who are many are one because we partake of one. You see, a Christian's new identity is strengthened by this participation and this association replacement. What were they doing in 1 Corinthians 8? They were hanging out in idol temples and they were just eating meat, right? Paul said, it's not about eating meat. Why? Because the meat's not what's killing you. It's that the meat's got your heart. And, And you give no regard to other people when you do it. Christians... They stop participating in and associating with idolatry and sin so that they can immerse their lives in communion and community to strengthen their new identity in Christ. Listen, if you don't have much time for church, it's no wonder that God just doesn't seem as big or as hopeful to you. You see, participation and association, it doesn't inherently make you something. That's what we learn about the Israelites, doesn't it? That they all participated, but many. We we don't have to understand that all in that generation necessarily were at the same depth of indulgence and idolatry as the others. But even by association, they were guilty. They were guilty. In the same way, I wonder how many today by participation and association with the church seem to think they're okay when there's no communion with Christ personally. But you see, the question you have to ask about participation and association is this. Does it more fully entangle you in sin and strengthen an idolatrous identity in you or does it strengthen because of your participation with Christ and in community Christ's new creation in you. That's the key. You can associate and you can participate with Christian fellowship and indulge in sin. That's possible, friends. You can show up every Sunday. You can can serve. You can do all of the activity. That is possible. You cannot remain and indulge in sin and commune with God. That's not possible. Let me tell you why you won't keep doing it. Because every time you go back to the Lord, He'll want to deal with that which is separating you. That which is killing your fellowship. And you'll just get flat out tired of God dealing with you on it. God, would you shut up? And would you let me mitigate this relationship? And God says, no. And you say, why? Well, because you're not God. And even in your own heart, you want to argue but you know you have no argument. You see, the more you mix your Christianity with sinful indulgence, the stronger sin will grow in you and the weaker Christ will become to you. 
the more deceived you'll become about and deprived of the truth. The more frustrated with and bitter at God that you will grow and the more discipline from God you'll beg for. That's what he says. Shall we provoke the jealousy of God? You don't really want to do that. Fleeing temptation always includes forsaking participation and association with sin. You see, friends, identity through participation will always determine how we live. Greater participation with Christ's sacrifice and communion and with fellowship and community strengthens our identity as Christians to live out this faithful witness. And so that's Paul's second instruction to us. But here, Paul begins to explain why Christians who, though we are free, can remain committed to flee from idolatry. Look with me in verse 23. For we have seen that we should allow no lingering near temptation, that that we should flee from temptation and idolatry so that we can pursue Christ. Why? Because in the activity of our life, we're reinforcing the identity of our life. And that relationship is real and important. And then he moves here to the third instruction. said, well, how do we do this? How do we, through our participation and our association, accurately reflect our identity? And here's what he says. He goes back to a a quote that he used in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. There's the principal point of this part. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Now let me just encourage you, friends. This is where it gets very confusing sometimes and hard. Because this comes into play in real life scenarios with real people. And this is so often where a conflict within us arises internally. But the third instruction that Paul is giving us here is that we should use a gospel-motivated obedience to live for the good of others. What do you mean gospel-motivated obedience? Well, just think of what Christ did. He humbled himself and became obedient to the Father to become a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to die upon a cross. And God raised him up, right? What I'm saying is put down our own desires, our own thinking that we might be taken up by the affections and the desires and the truth and the will of God in this. And he grants to us this application that I'll call a gospel-shaped filter for us to be able to apply You see, the gospel leads Christians to seek the good of others above personal desires. And so when we ask, how far can I go or how much can I do without sinning, what that is is looking back. We're we're driving in the rearview mirror and we're not using the windshield that's in front of us. We're measuring temptation that we want to entertain and we're going to turn into something, right? Right? Either by identity, a pillar of salt, or by tragedy, a light pole. I mean, one way or the other, looking back is always going to end in that. And the questions begin to reveal a focus on earthly things and a heart set on self-serving consumption and not righteousness and holiness or gospel faithfulness. I heard the story one time of a king who had a beautiful daughter and she came of, uh, of, of age where she was going to be going out into the city and, and participating in things on her own and he needed a carriage driver for, uh, for, for his daughter when she would be out and about. And the, along the way from the castle to the city, there was a very narrow road which on one side was a sheer cliff of about 2,000 feet and he needed someone who would be able to manage the horses to pull the carriage safely back and forth across that roadway. 
And so he set out a job application and he said it had several applicants come in. And the first applicant sat down and he asked him, he said, how close can you drive to the edge without carrying that carriage over the edge? And that person said, oh, king, I'm an expert at driving a carriage. I can come within six inches of the edge and have no fear of that carriage going off the edge. And the king said, thank you. We'll be in touch. The second applicant came in and said, oh, king, I can come in within two inches, but I can control those horses and those beasts will obey me so that we drive safely across that. The king said, thank you. We'll contact you. Don't worry about calling us. The third applicant came in and said, King, I don't know how close I can get to the edge, but I can tell you my focus is going to be staying as close to the inside as possible. And the king said, you're hired. Why? It's all about focus, friends. It's all about focus. Serving the good of others above seeking your own always provides the defining gospel application principle for Christians. You see what he tells us in verses 25 to 27 is that Christians are free to live for God's glory. And we're unbound by cultural and by worldly labels. But the recognition of sin and idolatry is a game changer because when someone identifies that that is the way that they participate in selfish indulgence, we might call it today, or just any kind of idolatrous activity, once that is acknowledged, it's a game changer that Christians can no longer partake in because not our activity, but rather by the intent or by the meaning that's been associated with that activity now changes what it means. And we refrain not for our conscience. That's what Paul says. My conscience is not restrained by them. I'm free in Christ. But it may be that my freedoms will be sacrificed or given up for the sake of them. So we refrain not for our conscience, which is free in Christ, but our activity testifies in this instance to what we believe regarding God. And associating with idolatry, it creates a stumbling block for those who are caught in it. And so Christians refuse to participate in activity that associates itself explicitly with idolatry. And the sacrifice of liberty, it doesn't limit or change our conscience. But rather, we submit our conscience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to His glory. And so we don't lose our freedom when we give it up to serve others. Rather, we offer it in service to the Lord. And the sacrifice serves as a faithful witness to point that person to Christ and refuses to provide any measure over which another might stumble because we know that when we cause another to stumble into sin by our influence, it is actually sin for us against God. And so we must be careful. We hear the argument there's nothing wrong with this in describing an activity. That's not justification for participation, friends. Whether a Christian should participate in a specific activity or not is not determined, or excuse me, is determined by two things. First of all, its influence and its effect upon our own conscience. We will not live in conflict with our conscience. Therefore, first of all, we should consider whether an activity, our participation, aligns with our own conscience. And second of all, we should consider how it aligns with the other person. What influence, what effect will it have upon them? And I would offer this, as we live in alignment with our conscience, this second determinant will actually become the first consideration in application. That we're thinking about the other person. One commentator says it this way, that the action which to the strong, meaning a Christian, whose conscience sets him free, who to the strong is a simple exercise of freedom, must not be made the means of offense to another. In other words, what, we, uh, what may not offend our Christian conscience doesn't immediately make it a justification for participation with another whose conscience we know it will offend. Christians are not free to do whatever they wish. But we are bound to do as is best in providing a faithful witness in leading others to faith in Jesus. I, I, I offered this to you in a very basic form, and I don't have time to elaborate on it today, but let me just help you apply this in regards to your Christian liberties and a faithful witness. 
I want you to filter every situation, circumstance, activity, opportunity, and relationship through three questions to know that you're providing a faithful witness in your Christian liberties. And Paul provides these explicitly for us. First of all, will this participation or my association be helpful? Will it be helpful? Will it be helpful for me and my personal obedience? Will it be helpful to encourage faithfulness in other Christians? Will it be helpful to encourage a faithful witness to other people? who do not know Jesus? Will it be helpful? Number two, can this activity dominate, control, or impair my life in any way? And here's the focus of this question, friends. The focus is the potential for. The potential for that becomes the determinant. I'm not saying you conceive of some wacko idea out there and go, yes, in four removed universes, there is a potential out there. That No, I'm talking about the situation. Knowing the people, knowing the situation, you've got to consider that and ask, here and now, is this going to become, can this activity dominate, control, or impair my life in any way? And that potential for becomes the dominant. So Christians consider that potential effect of the liberty in the exercise of it. And then nothing is allowed to threaten their control over their life or even over the life of another when I know they can or may be dominated by it. I'll give you one quick illustration of this. If I'm hanging out with someone who is a recovering alcoholic, I'm not going to hang out with them in bars. Why? Because the past has already proven it through their participation. Right? If I am a recovering alcoholic myself, God's not probably most likely going to call me to a principal witness of hanging out in bars. Why? Because I've been dominated by that. Think about that, friends. It was the same way with the eating meat. And Paul goes on in Romans 14 to apply this to eating and drinking. The third question is, does this activity build others up? This is focused on the actual influence produced. In other words, it's not just a nebulous what could happen, but you move it to a, can I use this participation to strengthen that person's relationship with Christ, to introduce faithfully that person to Christ? Yes, this is where we apply the gospel to situations, and it can become hard for us, but God has been faithful to give to us a way to think about these things and to apply them. And listen, the point is not for us to judge one another and go, well, I've seen them do this, I've seen that person do that, they were right, they were wrong, and, you know, and to cast judgment. The point is, what are you doing? What are you doing? Are you presenting a faithful witness for Christ? Paul tells the Galatians, for you were called to freedom. In other words, saved to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Christians use their liberties to win more people to faith in Jesus. Any other use is idolatry. That's what Paul's telling us. The fourth instruction, verses 31 through 1. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Here's the fourth instruction he gives. Set God's glory as your first priority over self-pleasure. Christians never replace God's glory with any other defining motivation. And you've got to ask yourself, is it possible that God can be glorified? Is it the potential or actual that He will be glorified? Am I living? Am I living for God's glory? You know this, friends, in your heart. The Spirit of God will be faithful to guide you and to help you to discern whether your attitudes and actions and motivations are glorifying to God or for yourself. The question is, at that moment, you'll be confronted with whether you submit to what the Spirit says to you. And am I living in attitude and in action to make Christ known in all that I do and to all that I know? What does Paul say? Here's the thing I want to get. I want this participation substitution. It's so critical for us to be in the church. 
Why? Because Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. What's he talking about? He's talking about life-on-life discipleship. He's talking about life together. That's what Paul's talking about here. That, that, that we may not get it all right all the time, but we are with people who will encourage us in the right ways and strengthen us in those ways and will help us and lead us into repentance and restoration when we get it wrong. You see, life together is the strongest training for living to glorify God in all of life because it provides a model to imitate and accountability to help. So my question for you as we draw this to a close is this. Is there anybody around you who is helping you walk and imitate Jesus? Is there anybody around you that you know, I'm not talking about somebody that's perfect. And if you think of them that way, we got a whole other issue we need to talk about. Anybody helping you imitate Jesus? Anybody helping you be accountable? To imitate Jesus. You see, perfection is not the point. Christ's already got that covered. For us, participation is. Participation. Life on life discipleship. Christians live a faithful witness to win people to Jesus when they apply the gospel to all of life for God's glory. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help. Because as difficult as it is to work through this in teaching at times, it's multiplied many times over in applying it in the daily grind of life. God, seldom do we walk out going, you know, I just want to be a big screw up for God. But often we feel like that's what we've done. God, you you are not a God that counts our offenses and holds them against us. You are a God who has come to us. You've provided a way out from every temptation that attacks us. And you've given us the grace to be redeemed when we've fallen into that sin. You've even given us a way through participation with the cup and with the bread and with the body of those who are also participating. You've given us a way to redeem our identity and who we see ourselves as being in this world that we might live not for our own glory and not for our own good, but that we might live to serve others for the glory of God. God, that takes a major shift in our mind and in our heart. And it's not one that we'll ever make on our own. For we need Jesus to lead us. And so God, I pray today, first of all, that you would guard us against condemnation that clouds our thinking, that just frustrates us and and just kind of balls us up in stress and tenseness and says, I don't know what to do. I'm not going to do anything. But rather, in grace and mercy, I pray that you would meet us by your Spirit right now. You'd help us just to exhale for the moment. And you'd help us to receive your wisdom today and to look into our own life, to see the example you've provided, to hear the instruction you've given. And now, by the Spirit, through personal reflection, You'd help us to look into our own life, the way we live, the patterns of our thinking, the patterns of our living, the patterns of our relationship, and we would bring them all into submission of your worthiness, Lord Jesus, to honor and glorify you even now. Help us to do that. 